You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. Marsh, England. Sunday, the 13th of March, 2011. We've just gone up to the workshop to, to pick some things out. Yeah. And somebody came up with his line. Yeah. They tagged us and set fire to the place. It's the building that's on fire. Yeah. It is. Okay, then. I got out. I managed to Right, then. It's okay. Is everybody out of the building? No, there's still my partner in. Right, is he able to get out of the building? No, because there's fires near the door. Firefighters rushed to the scene and were there within minutes. When they arrived, they found the caller, 43-year-old Julie Dixon, standing outside by the gate, hysterical and crying. Her hair had been singed and her face was covered with soot. Her partner David was still in the building and the fire crew needed to find him as quickly as possible. Julie was able to explain to them where in the building David was, saying, He's locked in there, he's in there, they bundled him in. When the crew manager went into the building, he saw by a door a can of burning liquid. Other than that, there was no fire in the foyer. The acrid smell of smoke was suffocating and soot filled the air. The fire crew soon realised that the fire had actually burnt itself out. This was not a big fire that had engulfed the building. This was a small fire that had been set in a specific place. They made their way to the cupboard that David had been locked in and tried to open it, but it wouldn't budge. The door had been made by David himself and was incredibly secure and sturdy. They were able to knock a hole through, and upon peering inside, they could see that he was in there on his knees, facing the door. He wasn't responding to them. They used an axe and continued to hack away at the door, and were finally able to release it. David fell out towards them and onto the floor. There was very little room for the crew to work on him, so he was carried outside, and the paramedics worked desperately to try and revive him as he was in cardiac arrest. In the back of the ambulance, the paramedics tried for roughly 30 minutes, but it was no use. David Twig had died. No keys were found on David, and the cupboard he had been locked in could only be locked from the outside. The keys were nowhere to be found. There was no way he had locked himself in. This was clearly a murder. Julie was taken to the hospital to be treated, and was later told that her partner hadn't made it. Julie was completely hysterical and utterly distraught, at one point collapsing in grief. When she was in a better state and discharged from hospital, she was interviewed by specially trained officers as the investigation got underway to try and figure out how and why David had died. Due to the chaos and confusion of the initial scene, they needed to go through it bit by bit to build a clear picture of the timeline of events and a clear picture of their victim. Borilla Marsh is truly a picturesque place to live. Quaint and rural with a strong sense of community, crime is rare and people feel safe in this little town. One of those in the community who was well-liked and respected was 46-year-old David Twig. He lived there with his partner of 15 years, 43-year-old Julie Dixon. They had been together since 1996. When they met, Julie was going through a divorce and she and David moved in with each other soon after meeting. Julie received money following the divorce and used it to purchase land in Station Yard. The land had a three-bedroom bungalow and an old railway engine shed, which they converted and used to run a bespoke joinery business, specialising in windows, doors and staircases. 
The office was situated at the front of the building, and this is where Julie would run things from. She would book in appointments, deal with suppliers, and the general day-to-day -day runnings of the business. Then there was the workshop, where David would create and work on projects, and then at the back was a small corridor and storage cupboard. David had been born and raised in Lincolnshire, and lived not far from his parents, Janice and Roy, and David was their only child. He was quiet and more reserved than Julie, and she was certainly the more outgoing of the two. David and Julie worked together, lived together, and spent much of their free time with each other too, appearing to many as a very happy couple. David's parents loved Julie, and she was very much like a daughter to them. David would later become interested in motor racing, and wanted to expand out and decided to sponsor one of the teams, after becoming friendly with racer John Mickle and John's wife Lisa. The couples grew close and began spending more time together. David and Julie also started a new company called Kitchen Bits and Bobs, which they were getting off the ground and wanted to work with the motor racing team to promote it. David was proud of his business, and the chance to reach a wider audience through sponsoring the racing team proved to be a worthwhile and successful endeavour. John and David would work together, as would Lisa and Julie. The couples travelled together and continued to grow close. That happiness and joy was now gone, as Julie sat in a police interview room while the hunt for whoever was responsible for her partner's murder began. Her story was horrifying. She said that although they had covered their faces, she thought they were white, but apart from that, could give no further descriptions of them. After shutting David in the store cupboard, they pulled her over to where a circular saw was kept and switched on. She struggled and fought with everything she had, and was able to break free, wriggling out of her hoodie and running out of the building. She said she remembered seeing the two men running out of the building too, around the back and away from the scene. Seeing that they had now gone, she ran back towards the workshop to try and find David, but upon opening the door she was met with fire and smoke which had burned her face and singed her hair. David was trapped and she couldn't get to him. She couldn't say much more due to the trauma and shock. Her interviews would have to be suspended as she was too emotional to carry on. She issued a statement following the intense media interest. I am so numb with pain, my heart is broken. I've not just lost my partner of 15 years, I've lost the love of my life, my best friend and soulmate. The news quickly spread throughout the area and people were stunned. Violent crime was just not something that happened in Borough La Marche and nobody could understand who would want David of all people dead. And even for many of the officers, they had never worked on a case like this. The police also issued an appeal for anyone who had been in and around the area that Sunday to come forward, as they may have seen something relevant. People in the area were understandably frightened. This was such a shocking and violent crime with no apparent motive, and everybody was left fearing if it could happen again. To the police, this seemed like a very unusual place to commit such a violent offence. This was a quiet and rural place, and the property was described as being off the beaten track, with limited access points. It was not the kind of place you stumbled across. You had to know where it was, and have local knowledge. The following day, Monday the 14th, Lisa Mickle received a call at around 7 in the morning from her friend Julie, who was inconsolable and crying. She kept saying, he's dead, he's dead but Lisa didn't know what she was on about and continued to ask her who it was she was talking about. When she replied it was David who had died, Lisa tried to get more information, but Julie could only say a few words like fire, masked men, and attacked. 
Lisa immediately grabbed her keys and made the four-hour trip to Lincolnshire to support her friend. Julie was at her parents' house when Lisa arrived, and she was clearly in shock. Lisa could not believe it when she saw Julie, who was rocking in a chair, with her hair singed and her face burnt. Julie told Lisa that she and David had gone to go and lock up. She had asked him to go and get a light bulb from the cupboard, and suddenly they were set upon by the intruders, who had locked David in there before starting the fire. A few weeks before David's murder, Julie had called Lisa in a very distressed state and said that her phone line had been cut off and then restored, as had her electricity. She was worried that it was someone targeting them. Lisa immediately told this to the police. Following this, specialist search teams conducted fingertip searches of the surrounding area to see if they could find anything. And, in some shrubbery and mud, the keys to the door had been found on land belonging to a neighbour. There were no fingerprints or DNA, but finding them in that location supported Julie's version of events, that the intruders had run off in that direction after starting the fire. The post-mortem results came back, and it was found that David Twigg had died as a result of the products of combustion, which are the poisonous gases that are caused following a fire, and smoke inhalation. Soot was found in his stomach and lungs. This meant that when the fire had started and continued to burn, David was still alive and breathing. In order to ascertain a possible motive, a financial investigator was brought on board. This unearthed some very interesting evidence. The business had come under intense financial hardship, and Julie had hidden the extent of this from David. She was the one in charge of the finances and administration of the business, and never told him about the amounting debts that were piling up rapidly. The financial investigator discovered that none of the creditors, nor anyone from Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, had actually spoken to David throughout any of this. They had always spoken to and dealt with Julie. She had even hidden from him that a warrant had actually been issued for his arrest for not cooperating with the official reviewer after he had been declared bankrupt in October 2010 after owing HMRC thousands. She would tell officials that David was unable to deal with it, saying he was abroad and that he was also terminally ill, neither of which were true. The warrant for his arrest had been issued three days before his death. The police also found out that the post had been diverted to a local garage and Julie would be the one to go and pick it up. This was so that David would not be privy to any of the letters that were sent to them. He had started to become aware of some of it after he was shocked to discover that Julie had actually remortgaged to inject money into the business. Considering the financial trouble they were in and the enormous debts that had been racked up, officers were curious as to why Julie had made no mention of this. A fire investigator went to the scene, and it was his job to work out how the fire had been started. It was a difficult job, as fire can often destroy vital evidence that helps piece together the story of a crime scene. Forensic officers were also trying to find fingerprints and DNA left by the alleged assailants. Based on the evidence, it was believed that the fire had been started after petrol had been poured onto the floor of the foyer. There was a red molten object on the floor, believed to be a part of a can of fuel. And in the workshop, placed on top of a blue barrel, was a red petrol can. This appeared to be staged, and not the result of people running away after quickly starting the fire. The police then called in a police dog handler for their assistance, and an expert was brought in from Derby with a Springer Spaniel dog. They took the dog around the crime scene, 
and it too was able to detect and indicate that an accelerant had been used. As they carried on investigating, they discovered that the local garage had surveillance cameras and someone was caught on camera purchasing petrol on the morning of the blaze. It was none other than Julie Dixon. This was also something she had failed to mention. When asked by the police why she had done this, she said that they had been doing some work in the garden and she needed to go and get some petrol for the lawnmower. Another thing that struck the officers as very strange was that Julie had a BlackBerry mobile phone but told them she didn't know the PIN and therefore couldn't give them access to it. To try and gain access, the police contacted experts in Canada to see if it could be accessed without the PIN and without the data being lost. But this was not possible. She had been using it up until the day of David's murder, so nobody else had accessed it and nobody else had changed the PIN. Why now was she saying she didn't know it? Two months after the murder, David's body was released to his family so they could have a funeral for him. The couple's friend Lisa was shocked by Julie's behaviour. Julie was cracking jokes, being loud and inappropriate, a far cry from the devastated woman who had called 999. Her behaviour was erratic and attracting attention, and Lisa said she began to feel in her gut that something was very, very wrong. As time ticked by, Julie's behaviour continued to raise suspicions. Lisa recalled that at one motor car race meeting... When they arrived, there had been a police car there. At the sight of this, Julie, for no reason, exploded and began to scream and shout and hit things around her. She then started to cry and rock back and forth. As Lisa tried to find out what was wrong and what had sparked this reaction, all Julie could say was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. The police officers had seized Julie's clothes to examine them. Since she had been in such close contact with the assailants, it was hoped that there would have been some sort of transfer DNA from them to her clothes, but there was no such evidence on them. However, they did show something that was strange. Traces of petrol were found on her clothes, and they could not have come from the fire. They had come from pouring the petrol. Her injuries were also not consistent with her being hit by a backdraft after opening the door, which is what she said had happened. More disturbing evidence came to light when laptops and computers from the home were looked into. In December 2010, just a few months before David's murder, the couple's computer was used, under an account named Julie. Several internet searches had been made. The thing that kills you and does not show on a post-mortem. How can I disguise tablets in food? I've tried to disguise tablets in chocolate syrup, but it still does not work. Chocolate syrup had been ordered online. Julie had collected and signed for the delivery. She had also mentioned to her friends that she was not happy in her relationship and wanted to start a new life with David out of the picture. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. All of this new information made the officers investigating David's death 
see her 999 call in a whole new light. When she called, why hadn't her first information been that her partner was trapped inside a burning building? Why had she made such a point about the intruders and where they had gone in the workshop when the more vital information was that David was still in there? Julie's story was falling apart. The 6th of June, 2011. A suspect was arrested and taken to Skegness Police Station to be interviewed. 43-year-old Julie Dixon. She went into the interview room with her solicitor, and to the shock of the police, they were given a prepared statement. In relation to the death of my partner David Twig, I wish to say the following... David and I decided that day to jointly commit suicide in the workshop. David poured petrol, which I had bought for the lawnmower. She then said that she took the matches, set one alight, and then tossed it onto the petrol. As the fire started and the flame spread, she said she panicked and ran away, leaving David locked inside. She said she accepted that, by my actions through our suicide pact, I am responsible for the death of David. I realise that in panic and fear I have misled the police as to what happened and I apologise for this. The police were stunned. This was the last thing they had been expecting her to say. When she was asked to elaborate and provide more information, all she said was no comment. David's friend John Mickle, Lisa's husband, refused to believe that this had been a suicide pact, as did many others. There was simply no evidence to suggest that David was unhappy let alone intent on harming himself. The police hadn't charged her and they were running out of time. They too did not believe that this was a suicide pact gone wrong. They believed that this was more than likely a case of her trying to shift blame and not take responsibility for what she had done to him. So they spoke to the Crown Prosecution Service and the decision was reached that Julie Dixon would be charged with the murder of David Twigg. This happened the following day on the 7th of June. She entered a plea of not guilty to the charge of murder and was remanded in custody. Her trial date was set for the 5th of December, 2011. She went on trial at Lincoln Crown Court with Judge Michael Heath presiding, and it was here that her story would change yet again. Now, she said, she hadn't actually wanted to die, but David did, and she had assisted him in his suicide. She said that he had been the one to pour the petrol and strike the match, but then she had had a change of mind about assisting him and fled. One officer said that it was a clear attempt to distance herself in any way she could from his death and put the responsibility for it onto him. The prosecution were adamant that this was not true. This was not an assisted suicide. This was a cold-blooded, premeditated and brutal murder. When looking at possible motives, the financial trouble that the couple were in and the extent of which she was hiding from him was laid bare. The court heard that £396,000 had been borrowed over the previous seven years. This was an amalgamation of remortgaging and loans, and the money was used to pay off some of the debts the business had, home renovations and credit cards. Julie said that David was aware of the mounting debts and financial problems, and said that she had never taken any money from the business for her own personal spending. She also denied forging his signature to remove money from the account. She said he knew he had been made bankrupt and described him as distraught. To the shock of the court, on the second day of her trial, on the 7th of December, Julie Dixon changed her plea and pleaded guilty, breaking down in tears as she addressed the judge. She said that the reason for changing her plea 
was because it was not fair to the family and she didn't want to put them through it. Judge Heath said, how hollow those words sounded when they were uttered, how hypocritical they were. Following this, it was left to the judge to decide on the facts of the case and the motive. Over the following five days, the many different stories Julie had told were presented to the court. Firstly, the intruders, then it being a suicide pact, then an assisted suicide, and the lies upon lies she had told to investigators and friends and family. The house of cards she had built up around herself, by hiding mail, intercepting calls, lying to Lisa about being targeted by unknown assailants, and not being honest about the financial issues to David. It was all starting to collapse around her. The bailiffs were going to go to the property to remove assets and recover some of the money that was owed, and she could not keep up her lies for much longer, thus providing a motive for wanting David out of the picture. The prosecution put forward what they believed had happened that day. They said that she had lured David into the cupboard before running out and locking him inside. She had then poured petrol on the floor, struck the match and started the fire. This had caused a vapour cloud which had singed her hair and burnt her face. This was what her injuries were consistent with. While David was consumed by the smoke that was rushing in under the door, she ran outside and threw the keys away. She then went to the bathroom in the bungalow to wash her hands and saw in the mirror that she had been injured by the vapour cloud. This was something that she hadn't planned for. Singed hair was found in the bathroom sink and they belonged to Julie. This meant that while her partner lay dying in a small, dark cupboard, she was in the bungalow looking at herself in the mirror before staging her call to 999. The prosecution said the critical question in this case may well be who locked the storeroom door. It is our case that this defendant, Julie Dixon, locked the door and her purpose in doing so was murder. There was no light in the cupboard and no windows either. David would have been in total darkness as the smoke rushed in and took his life. After all the evidence was presented, the judge sided with the prosecution. 43-year-old Julie Dixon was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 23 years. The judge said that the call Julie had made to the emergency services and later how she had behaved in hospital would be worthy of the highest praise had she been an actress in a fictional drama and would have merited an Oscar. He also said she was interviewed as a victim of crime, behaving like one. She gave a detailed, untruthful account of what had happened, punctuated by tears and sobbing. It was all a charade, her account being made up. That was designed to mislead the police. She lied and lied and lied. David Twigg was an amiable, hard-working and honourable man. What you did to him was evil. There was a significant degree of planning and premeditation. The pain that your prolonged and multiple lying has caused David Twigg's parents can only be imagined. The judge said that Julie's assertion that David had wanted to die was a pack of lies. Detective Chief Inspector Stuart Gibbon said, At no stage in the police interview or the court case did she show any remorse or reason why she did what she did. We may never know the motive. After she was sentenced, David's parents said, We have lost our only son David at the hands of someone we have loved and treated as a daughter. David was a kind, decent, hard-working man who took great pride in that work and the service he provided to people. We do not want to comment on our thoughts about Julie Dixon, who was finally admitted to murdering our wonderful son, but have to say we are happy to see justice finally being done and will leave her with her own thoughts. The pain caused by Julie Dixon's lies are quite simply impossible to comprehend. 
David Twigg was a man whom many loved and respected. He was friendly, kind and would do anything for anyone. He had worked hard to build up his businesses and his standing within his close-knit community. His life was ended in a brutal way that many of us can scarcely begin to imagine, at the hands of a woman he had given 15 years of his life to. For his devastated parents, their lives forever changed that Sunday evening in 2011. His mom Janice said, David was all Roy and I had. Not being able to see him or speak and talk with him and tell him how much we love him is very hard to accept. His father Roy echoed this, saying, I can't say anything more. Only losing David has created a vast void that I'm struggling to fill. <laughs>